Constellation, Episode 9, Playa. Dave is sitting on the floor, by the door. He didn't get any further. Carl fetches his first aid box from the bathroom and starts to clean the blood from Dave's head. After a minute or two, Dave is able to say, Hospital? Nah, I don't think so. Your ear took a bash, you've got a black eye and you've got blood all over, but I don't think you need stitches. Phew says Dave. I was lucky that they scarpered when some people arrived in a car. One of them had a baseball bat. I think that was what did my ear. Shame I broke that bottle of wine. You know, I knew it had to happen at some point. Someone sent by Phil and Baz, asks Carl. Yeah. They could have killed you. Nah, says Dave. They would have sent someone with a gun. This was just to let me know they've not forgotten about me. Nice. Here, have a vodka. Reminds me of Kitano Sonatina, you sitting here, waiting for the showdown. Fuck off, Carl, laughs Dave, through the pain. You've got a film for every situation. I don't even want to know how that one ends. Early next morning, while Dave is still sleeping, helped by vodka and codeine pills, Carl makes a call. Who's this? Says the voice that Carl hasn't heard for at least ten years. Carl. Vaz. Jesus. Hello, monsieur. We know where you are, you know. Isn't this about that druggy mate of yours? Nope, he had nothing to do with it. Okay. The drugs washed up in Norfolk last month, and the cannabis farm in Stoke? They're connected, said Carl. What farm in Stoke? Oh, right. A people smuggling thing. Yeah. And the guys are called Phil and Baz. I think it's Phil Maguire. Irish? I think he's a Geordie, actually. They were rescued by the RNLI off Norfolk. Why are you telling me all this? I just want to stop someone getting hurt. Wow, you're getting all empathetic all of a sudden, says the man just before Carl ends the call. He's sweating. Just the thought of being in touch with them makes him physically sick now. He'd left that all behind him. He needs a drink. He looks at his watch. It's 8.30am. Better make that a cup of tea, he thinks. 
In the kitchen, he looks up at a notice board covered with photos, flyers, takeaway menus. Pinned up there is an old flyer he found in a box in the studio the other day. A bit psychedelic. ICA London, Review of Live Art, it says. Forced Entertainment, Dogs in Honey, The Group. They were all sitting around the living room, Toby, Carol, Gus, Mary and Carl. Carol had made vegetarian couscous with some merguez on the side for the meat eaters. Cheers, welcome all, said Toby. They'd been talking for ages about doing something collaborative, combining film, music, sculpture and performance. Now there was an opportunity. Toby's friends, the group Forced Entertainment, were organising a tour and they wanted a support act. A performance of about 30 minutes. Toby thought it would be the perfect venue for the group. They just had to think of a name. At some point, Gus left the room and came back with a Luigi Nono record, La Fabrica Illuminata. How about that? Fabrica Illuminata. Fabricata. Nah, says Mary, it sounds too posh. Fabricata. Fabricata Illuminata. That's not going to go down well up north. In the end, they decided to call it The Group in capitals. TG for short, said Carl. That one's been taken, said Toby. Anyway, the group is short enough. Then the discussion, fueled by bad wine and better grass, went on into the small hours. They all had their own ideas about content. Mary had just been down to Greenham Common and was talking about witches and witch hunts. Gus had been reading about the Kabbalah and musical symbolism. Carl was interested in stroboscope-induced hallucinations and the Situationist International. Toby was reading Deleuze and Guattari's Anti-Oedipus. Carol was talking about Middle Eastern politics and yogic technique. What they did agree on was that the performance should be immersive, ritualistic and cathartic, that it should bypass any intellectual analysis. And it should be a situation, not a spectacle, said Carl. And then he had to explain to them all about Guy Debord. Mary told them about the nine o'clock service how she thought that they had a clear power problem with Chris. She didn't tell them about the massage incident. But the services with the dance music and the flashing images were actually very close to the kind of performance, sorry, situation, they wanted to create. They're God-bothering weirdos though, said Gus. We'll do something completely different. Is that guy still bothering you? Said, yeah. She explains to the others that Chris had persuaded Zed that Mary was the love of his life and he kept phoning her up. 
They're off the heads, that lot, said Toby. I'd stay well away. Well, I am doing now, says Mary. I've had enough church for now. And Zed, he's moving to Manchester to join a band, luckily. Carol talked about her recent trip, working in a socialist youth camp in Morocco. On the way back, she and a friend had been invited to a big family party in Fez. It was a bit boring because the women were eating in one room and the men in another. But when the music started, something strange happened. Some of the younger, unmarried women got up to dance, just the women. It was very rhythmic music. Jilala or Gnawa, asks Gus. Dunno, lots of drums. And so they were dancing right. And one by one, they started to sort of headbang, whirling, flailing their hair around. Everyone just looked on. And at some point, the girls got wobbly and looked like they were completely out of it, but they just carried on dancing. Some older women got up and gathered around the dancing girl. The girl fell over, fainted, and was carried off to recover. It must have happened five or six times. Everyone just sat around drinking tea and soft drinks and chatting as if it was totally normal. See, says Gus, it's the same in all sorts of cultures, this link between music and trance states. Maybe it's like old shamanic practices filtering through. Later, said Carol, Margaret and I had to dance in front of everyone, and you know what the band played? Bloody, I just called to say I love you. Our friend got angry and told us later that it was a political message. What, says Carl? How come? Well... Apparently Stevie Wonder is a friend of the king and by getting foreigners to dance to his music they were implicating us in the royal hegemony. Wow, that's perverse, says Carl. Talking of trance states, says Gus, I, uh, I heard we might be getting some acid next week. Anyone up for it? We could go up into the hills. He'd been trying to persuade Carl for ages to take LSD. Toby said he'd done it before, and although it was great, this time he would pass. Carol and Mary were in for it. I'll see, said Carl, how I feel next week.
Carl finishes a long email to his gallery, trying to sort out what they've still got in stock, hoping that it'll prompt Kim to actually wire him some money. He makes soup and then goes and wakes Dave up. Ah, me head, says Dave, sitting up with his bandaged head. But after a couple of painkillers and a bowl of soup, he feels like he's alive again. Just don't call on the neighbours, says Carl. They'll take one look at you and call the police, or have a heart attack. I'll go and get the shopping for them later. Perfect moment to tell me about your business career, you promised. And why they kick you out. You know, it was all Tony Blair's fault, begins Dave. It was in the 90s. The rave scene had taken off with an explosion of new drugs and new dealers. Dave found the scene less and less interesting. He realised that it was truly the deals themselves, the connections between people that he was interested in. And more and more people seemed to be making silly money, turning into yuppies. He enrolled in an MBA at Sheffield University. Things were getting so corporate that Dave wanted to learn the new jargon and more about the structure of businesses. After graduating, he set up a company, an internet startup, although the term didn't really exist yet. He was looking for something different, something clean, above all, something legal, and he thought that the IT world was probably the straightest thing to get into at that moment. He knew very little about computers himself back then. That was why he'd employed Gus. After his crisis in 1989, Gus stopped playing music and got into computer programming. His goal was, of course, always to make music with the computers, and he did some courses at York University. But the computer itself was like a whole new world to be explored. He was so busy trying out different languages and hardware that when he made music, it was more a chance byproduct of whatever algorithm he was testing at that moment. Dave, who'd always felt responsible for Gus, particularly after his bad trip, felt that he was digging himself into a technological hole. It was intellectually interesting, maybe, but musically? He felt that Gus should find something to do in the real world. So Dave managed to persuade him to develop some software to link computers over the net in a private, secure way, which he then went on to sell to all sorts of people, reputable companies included. Dave imagined that this was his key to going straight, but he quickly realised that there was nothing straight about the world of business. As you go higher up, he says, crime doesn't go away. It just deals in millions of pounds instead of thousands. Drugs, too, were everywhere, and a computer company was a perfect way to launder money, as the people buying software were the same as the ones buying cocaine. One of his trusted customers, Donald, 
had moved to London to work for an investment bank. He once said to Dave, you've got such a creative mind, you should work in finance. After the financial crash in 2008, Dave was surprised that Donald got in touch with him again. He'd moved around a lot between jobs and was now a managing director at another bank, supervising structurers who were creating complex financial products, just the thing that had caused the crash in the first place. In the face of new regulations, they were looking for new angles, and Dave was asked to come in and advise them. Dave thought that Donald, being managing director, was the boss, but it turned out that there were loads of MDs. He never got his head around the hierarchy. Vice presidents, directors, managing directors, CEEs, CEOs. Dave and Donald used to meet together with a legal advisor, just the three of them. Dave was there to think out of the box. The legal advisor, she was there to tell them how illegal his ideas were. Basically, said Dave, these guys are good at numbers and stress, but not much else. What they needed was a creative, well, a criminal mind, I guess. I was interested in seeing how it worked, to see how far I could push them to do stuff. I ended up realising that at least from a moral perspective, there were more criminals working there than I'd ever met in my life. And of course, the financial industry is amoral. The only thing that counts is profit. How you get it is by the by, as long as you get away with it. The bosses are happy. I thought that there were some things that could be done by using, well, other people's money to micro-invest. Like... I borrow 50p from your account, I use it for a few seconds to make a fraction of a penny profit, and I put it back. You don't miss it, and if I do that hundreds of times a second, the profit can add up. Or not, of course, because to some extent it's still gambling. The programmers that they had were great at algorithms and maths, but they weren't really hackers. That's when I asked Gus to get involved again. They wanted to employ me officially, but I set up another business so that I could employ him. And I worked as an advisor, sometimes at the bank and sometimes at home. Gus could do stuff that the quants couldn't. They'd grown up with things like C++. They write loads of complicated bureaucratic code to do something quite simple. Gus does the opposite. He bought his first computer in 1986 so he's used to working at machine level, as he says himself. He can make code look like something quite innocent, like a request for a permission to access a memory location or something, whereas in fact, it opens a door to a Machiavellian scheme. The funny thing was that Gus still listened to the output of his algorithms as musical data. He claimed that he could hear when it was going wrong. He didn't like staring at the screen. Basically, we were doing things they always did, but with some tweaks to give the bank an edge. The naughtiest was the Bank of England news feed. When there was an official announcement about, for instance, a change in interest rates, the video feed 
was a fraction of a second slower than the audio feed, so anyone just listening would have a tiny advantage over people watching Bloomberg TV or whatever. We knew this already, and a tiny advantage is all you need. Gus had managed to cobble together a speech recognition algorithm to analyse the audio feed so that the computers themselves would hear and understand the announcements and then trigger transactions without anyone needing to press a button or make a phone call. But this analysis process took a bit of time, too much time. So what Gus did was hack the video code itself. He put in something which looked like it was supposed to be there, but it did nothing for 1 25th of a second. It created a delay of exactly one frame of video. And 1 25th of a second was all it took to be ahead of the game. For all Dave knew, it was still there, hidden away in the machines, making money for those bastards. But Gus was difficult to manage with his obsessions and mood swings. David made him promise never to hack a computer in the US. He didn't want to have to fight an extradition order. And he'd set up a trust fund for Gus, just in case. He paid him 20% of what would have been his wages if he'd really worked for the bank, and the rest he'd put away offshore. If anything happened to Gus or Dave, the money would be there to help. He'd almost had to hire expensive lawyers a couple of years ago when Gus had started spreading an app called Spottyface. It was a combination of face recognition software and generative fractal imagery. If you installed it on your phone, it made a kind of an invisible skin over photos on Facebook or Instagram. You could tag faces and then infect them with various skin diseases. It had a slider which went from dry skin through acne and syphilis all the way up to plague. Then, every time, for instance, David Cameron, Mark Zuckerberg or Dua Lipa or whoever appeared on your screen, they might look slightly ill or, indeed, like something out of a medical textbook. Luckily, having received cease and desist letters from Facebook, Spotify and Apple, Gus managed to disable all the apps. It was lucky that he wasn't really into social media himself. He hadn't spread it that far. So how about Tony Blair? asks Carl. Dave asks for a beer before he can continue. You must be feeling better, says Carl. No, not really. In 2012, Donald was hoping to persuade the bank to give Dave a big bonus. And when the real bosses had invited all his team to a party, he thought it was a good opportunity. So he persuaded Dave to come down from Sheffield. They'd hired a complete nightclub for the occasion. As well as the top echelons of the bank, there was a scattering of celebrities, some that even Dave recognised a group of Russians who apparently owned a football club, and some Arabs. Dave guessed they were Saudis. He 
He wasn't really used to this kind of thing, but he was socialising acceptably with his team when there was a hush. You know, when four people stop talking in a crowd, then everybody stops to see what changed. I turn around and I see some suit walking with bodyguards, stopping to greet people. When he gets closer, I see it's bloody Tony Blair. Well, he gets hired in for all sorts. But anyway, I suddenly feel this flush, like a rush of adrenaline. I'd always hated the Blyer, but while the Iraq war was going on, I went on this, like, activist training. What? You went to what? Says Carl. Yeah. And one of the things I learnt was how to do a citizen's arrest. Uh-oh, says Carl. Yeah, you can feel it coming, right? Anyway, I turn around and the girl, sorry, woman I was talking to has disappeared. When I look back at Blair, he's talking to my boss. So I go off and get another drink to cool off and get to talking to some others. After about ten minutes, I think it's time for a little line, so I go to the bog. I'm just coming out of the cubicle and one of Blair's bouncers comes in. So I'm suddenly a bit coked up and I come out of the loose and the first thing I see is Blair walking towards me on his own. This is my big moment. I stand as wide as I can in front of him. Anthony Blair, this is a citizen's arrest for a crime against peace, namely your decision to launch an unprovoked war against Iraq. I ask you to accompany me right now to a police station to answer the charge. Blair looked at Dave with a strange smile on his face. This annoyed Dave so much he tried to get Blair in an arm lock, but he tripped and they both fell to the ground. Blair was shouting something, but Dave just carried on with his speech, hoping that someone would come and help him. The bouncer, just out of the loose again, grabbed Dave and pulled him up, pushing him against a wall. Dave looked into the bouncer's face. His eyes were protruding, and he had a bit of white powder on his lapel. You cunt, says the bouncer. You fucked it all up. Blair was still lying on the ground, shouting, and Dave suddenly realised what he was saying. I'm not fucking Tony Blair, you idiot! Everyone was standing around in a semicircle looking. The team, the bosses, the Arabs and the Russians. And it suddenly dawns on me. This guy is an impersonator, a look-alike. You can hire him if you want people to think you've got Tony in tow. And that's exactly what my bosses had done. They were just about to whisk him out of there without anyone noticing, but I made them all look totally stupid. Someone pulled me away from the bodyguard and said that I'd better leave. How Donald managed not to get fired, I don't know, but he didn't speak to me again for months. So that was the end of my career in finance. And now? What's going on now? Well, it turns out that they're being investigated for things that happened around that time. I was called as a witness, but I'm worried that they're going to drag me in, pin things on me. And Gus too, he'd never survive that. Thing is though, no one knows about some of the hacks we did. They're probably still in operation. I could reveal that and they'd be fucked. Or maybe not. 
No one at the top really ever gets punished, you know. 